If it is a passive kind of ignorance, we move about in a foggy bliss of unawareness. If we make ourselves ignorant, if we actively delude ourselves, then we are making a terrible mistake. We rob ourselves of the clarity of truths. We miss the beauty as well as the full depth and worth of the universe. Okay, good morning, everyone. This is Nube coming at you from Prison Focus Radio here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. And um, I hope you are tuning in on the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. This is a beautiful Thursday morning on February 20th. It is the day before the celebration of... Uh, um, Sorry, Malcolm X's assassination, which is tomorrow. Um, we are going to have a really good show. I want to first give a shout out, though, to um, all of our our peeps behind the wall. I hope you can hear us. And if you, um, the, as you know, this station, this platform is for you. It is for your families. It is for your loved ones. So make sure that you are at least getting your voice heard by, hope you're hearing me here. Um, know that we are going to be talking about your issues from the people um, that are, are experiencing it, such as you. So um, if you do not have a subscription to the Prison Focus newspaper, please make sure that you subscribe. If you are um, in the shoe, then you will get that as a complimentary subscription. You can write us at California Prison Focus, Focus 4408 Market Street, Suite A, Oakland, California, 9460. Eight. Also, encourage your family and friends to subscribe to the newspaper as well, because we really need people to get educated um, about the um, and hear from the voices of prisoners. Um, one of the statements that uh, are um, the the four reps of the California hunger strikes um, put out a statement, and one of the things that they said in there is. Without prisoners speaking about our conditions of confinement, the public narrative about imprisonment and mass incarceration is missing a critical voice, our voice, the incarcerated. We are the firsthand experts on the daily experience of being caged in prison generally and the trauma of extreme isolation. We want to hear from you. This is your platform. Okay, folks, we are going to get started right away. I have... On the line with us this morning, Ken Oliver. I am so excited to have him. I am, and we are going to get him on now. Um, 
Okay, hold on one second and let's see what we got. Okay, Ken, are you there? Yes, I am. Good morning. Ah, oh, fantastic. Good morning. It's so good to hear your voice. So listen, Ken, I would love to um, give an introduction um, to you and then we are going to go ahead and get started. So, okay, I'm with you. Okay, fantastic. So Ken joined the LSPC, which is Legal Services for Prisoners with Children staff, as a paralegal and community organizer in September 2019 after serving 23 years of a life sentence. So while incarcerated, Ken was an active leader and organizer in the fight for prisoners' civil rights. As a result of his activism, the Department of Corrections placed Ken in solitary confinement for more than eight years, while there, Ken taught himself constitutional law and successfully filed suit against the CDCR for violating his civil rights. Ken's litigation efforts directly led to his eventual release from prison, where he has now dedicated his life to serving others and the fight against injustice and mass incarceration policies. Wow. Welcome, Ken, to Prison Focus Radio this morning. I'm, I'm glad to be here. It's an honor to be able to speak to you, New Bay, and all the brothers and sisters that are out there listening, both behind the walls and out here in society. Fantastic. Well, we are really happy to have you here as well. So there is so much in this introduction, Ken, um, uh, where we could start. I, I would love to start with, while incarcerated, Ken was an active leader and organizer in the fight for prisoners' civil rights. So this is what you were doing when you were inside. Yes, I was. I was uh, at three different uh, level four prisons during the first ten years of my incarceration, involved with uh, politics against the administration, uh, both in the form as a men's advisory council uh, chairman, uh, organizing and, and uh, committing acts of activism against the administration for the rights we had, both in prison. Uh, and the rights that our families had in reference to visiting and correspondence and communications, et cetera. And as you know, New Bay, oftentimes when you ruffle feathers, you know, the administration finds that you become a threat or they make up or manufacture things to say that you're a threat in order to get rid of you. And that's kind of what led to me being placed in solitary confinement for eight and a half years. Okay, well, I definitely want to get to that. But there's something here um, that keeps coming up for me. So... Here you are, so whatever it was that you were doing that got you arrested and imprisoned, right? You came in and with, you came in with something. So there you are now inside and you're already, you're, you're doing that work that is threatening to the system. So you had this when you were snatched from the streets. So right. can you, I, I would love for you to um Dig in because I, I, I want the listening audience to get a, I want to help change the narrative. I want you to help me help change the narrative on the people that are being imprisoned, people that are being, um, that are being targeted and arrested for, for being, to be caged, right? So oh, yeah. you, I mean, you came in with a, with a, a life sentence, but yet you have all of this talent, clearly, for organizing and educating people and talking to people. So you had all, you had all this before you were in prison. Can you, can you kind of talk about what that is? We're talking about human beings here and the, changing the narrative. So 
would you mind sure. indulging me a little here? Sure, sure, absolutely. Let me try to give you a little background. I grew up in uh, South Los Angeles uh, and was involved in, in regular street activities that uh, most of my peers were involved in the streets, including uh, running the streets as a, as, a, as a tribe or gang member uh, in my youth. And, you know, I came through at a time, right, when the L.A. riots had occurred, Mm-hmm. Uh, I was part of a program that Jim Brown had called America I Can, where we organized uh, in our communities and organized our homies and homegirls uh, to try to restrain from violence, refrain from violence. Mm-hmm. And that kind of that kind of all coincided with the uh, three strikes law that came out in 1994. And it was a tough on crime uh, policy that resulted from a gentleman who uh, got out of prison and killed a little girl named Polly Class. Mm-hmm. And because of the L.A. riots and, and uh, the rebellions and, and because of what has happened out there in the communities, there was kind of this pushback from uh, lawmakers and this get-tough-on-crime type of stuff. And they basically wanted to lock everybody up, especially in Los Angeles County, for basically anything. Uh, stealing a slice of pizza, stealing a bicycle, stealing a pack of cigarettes, you know, getting caught with a dime bag of weed. They were passing out life sentences like it was candy. And I happened... Uh, at that time, to be a passenger uh, with a friend of mine in a stolen vehicle. Uh, I was a passenger, didn't know the vehicle was stolen, and there was a gun in the car. And because I was in that vehicle, even though they didn't tie me to the car or the gun, they gave me life in prison. Uh, so although resistance had kind of been part of my early development in my late teenage years uh, with the Jim Brown program, where I can, this this notion that somehow they would throw away my life and give me a life sentence and, and, and basically not make me eligible for parole until I was 82 years old. It, it, it kind of set a fire in me. Uh, so when I got to the level four prison at 28 years old with 50 to life, uh, I didn't see a way out. And, and my only natural uh, uh, inclination was to fight against the system. Now, when I say fight against the system, I wasn't you know, walking around every day punching guards, but what I was doing is making sure that myself and people like me had what they had coming in reference to uh, prison conditions, in reference to health care, in reference to uh, programming, in reference to visitation with families, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, oftentimes in level four prisons, uh, things are racially divided, as we know, and the prison administrators often take advantage of that and lock you down for mo- uh, months and sometimes years at a time without getting basic necessities like hygiene, without allowing you visitation, without allowing you uh, opportunities to pursue your legal uh, remedies in court for your criminal case. Uh, and it made it, it made it extremely difficult to survive on a daily basis when you're locked in a cage 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, th- there was no such thing as laying down. There, there was no, not such a thing as just saying, okay, well, I'm just going to do my time and just, you know, turn the other cheek and watch soap operas, which, which some dudes, you know, they do. Uh, for me, it was very natural to me to push back. And I guess it's kind of always been like that with me probably ever since I was a child, which is probably why I've been in trouble <laughs> in many ways. Well, uh, but yeah. that, that, led, that, led, that led to uh, administration shipping me from prison to prison because they thought that I was a troublemaker. They thought that I organized groups of people to do strikes. Uh, before the hunger strikes in the shoe, I was organizing sit-downs on yards to protest conditions that were occurring at level four prisons when we weren't getting the things that we were supposed to uh, have coming, and, and that became a problem for the administration. Indeed. So um, I, I think I'm so glad that um, you got that fire and you ke- and you kept that fire. Um, 
I also, you know, what we're saying, what you're alluding to also is that um, black and brown lives are 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 treated as um, disposable, and it's very easy to just snatch people up and um, do this the the tough on crime, which is what the the time frame that you were in, and we're really just continuing on with that with two million people incarcerated. Um, most of them for nonviolent crimes, and um, but that's a whole other issue. I think um, again, it's really important. I, I want people to hear this in a way that we also should be um, we should be outraged that we can just snatch people up from the streets without um, realizing any other aspects. These are human beings that have dreams and desires, and that yeah, okay, so you're you're you are standing up for yourself and and. Um, influencing your community and the people around you to stand up for yourself to be self-determined. These are all these are all resistances. Yes, that make the system um, target you. And so here you are now inside. And so I just want people to understand. Sorry, I I wasn't really finishing my sentence. But you're a human being. You when you were and you had dreams. You were doing the same young person doing things on the street like young people do, and um, you had a right to your life not to be captured and thrown into prison for life. So we need to talk about sentencing. We're not going to talk about it here, but I just want people to keep your ears perked up because these are the kinds of things that we are going to be continually talking about, about the over-sentencing, basically just ruining people's lives. Um, yeah, I, I do want to interject one thing, maybe if I please, may. Please, please. Because you, you alluded to earlier about uh, what happens to black and brown communities uh, in these concentration camps out here mm-hmm. that are on the streets, not necessarily behind the wall. Mm-hmm. 85% of the people in Los Angeles County that received life sentences for non-violent <sighs> crimes were either African-American or Hispanic. Uh, currently, there are 95% of the people still serving life sentences for non-violent crimes from Los Angeles County are black and brown people. Uh, so, so there's a racial disparity in the issuance of the life sentences, but then when there's reform or so-called reform where sentencing laws are supposed to change, most of the recipients of that of those changed laws initially are not black and brown people. Uh, and those that have, we've left behind, uh, behind the walls now that have non-violent, non-serious crimes are still black and brown people. Now, Personally, I don't differentiate between violent, non-violent. Those are right. uh, state designations. I mean, for me, uh, I've got homies that have, have been in, in prison uh, for violent crimes that are that are solid people, good, righteous people, uh, just like people who have committed uh, non-violent crimes. So I, I don't make a distinction uh, between the value of human life. Thank you. Uh, the, the majority of the people who have been left behind, despite changes in sentencing laws, AB 109, Proposition 47, Proposition 57, Proposition 36, are still black and brown brothers and sisters. I don't want to leave. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Especially from Los Angeles County. Now, I don't know what that is for for some of the counties up north, but I know in Los Angeles County, where I'm from, uh, we're still subject to disproportionate sentencing and sentencing laws, and our lives apparently uh, are disposable, as you mentioned. 
Thank you. Thank you for all of that clarity and especially around the violent and nonviolent crimes. Thank you so much. I don't really like to make those distinctions either. And sometimes when I put that out and we can't really discuss it, then um, it gets lost. But thank you for making sure that that doesn't get lost. But yes, we um, and again, this is the voice of Ken Oliver. Um, he has experienced this. This is a voice of someone, um, and and this is w- and this is what we are here for to hear from you to educate us. Uh, well, sorry, that's not your responsibility. It's our responsibility to hear what you are saying, learn and and get active to and and to to help change this because this has to stop because. Ultimately, these are our, you are our community members. We were in a um, we were at the Liberate the Cage Voices last night, and we were a group of many, and there were many people in there, thankfully, that um, were formerly incarcerated. And I think, and again, it's important that we are gathering together to hear from you and that your voices are put forward. So I would love to move on to your time that you spent um, um, under the torture of solitary confinement, which you. Um, I'm still going to call it torture because the UN, um, it, it is torture, but how you were able to overcome it, I think is extraordinary. But this is something, again, people, when we hear this and we think about how we are listening to Ken Oliver, who um, eight years, eight and a half years in solitary confinement, this is not what we want to um, subject people to, period. Just because he got through it does not mean that this is okay. Solitary confinement is torture, and it needs to stop. Absolutely. So, if I could, if I could speak on it just a little bit, I <laughs> when we say when we say that I got through it, I think that that, that may be subjective because it, even just listening to you speak and, and thinking about it, it conjures up you know uh, dark places for me uh, mm-hmm. to think about uh, what happened and, and what I went through in solitary confinement, which. You know, it is it could be considered mild to some of the brothers uh, that have been there twenty, thirty years, uh, forty years, like Hugo Pinnell, who uh, had spent more time in solitary confinement than any person in the nation, right. only to be let out and be uh, murdered on a prison yard in Folsom. You know, thirty or sixty days after he got out uh, of solitary confinement. But you know, that's another story. No, but thank you, yeah. thank you for mentioning yeah, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, to, I have to give a shout out to uh, you know Yogi. Uh, but, you know, for me, you know, I think that what still is shocking to me is that, you know, I spent a lot of my time in prison reading. I'm a voracious reader, uh, studying, you know, business, uh, my history, world history, world political thought, uh, philosophy, et cetera, and so forth, cosmology. And, you know, I'd, I'd never really had a problem, you know, uh, navigating my way through prison, you know, losing myself in in conversations with some of the best thinkers this world has ever known uh, until one day I, I gave a book uh, to a friend of mine uh, called Blood in My Eye by George Jackson, uh, which was one of probably about a hundred books that I had uh, in my cell at the time. And he returned the book. And when he returned the book, uh, an officer came and, and searched my cell and found the book, which was laying on my bed in plain sight. And uh, he ended up calling the sergeant and, you know, asking me what I was doing with the book. I said, I've had the book for about 12 years. Uh, what was the issue? And he said, well, you know, by you reading this book, you know, we might think that you're gang affiliated. And, 
<laughs> I was like, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, this is a book about black political struggle, uh, historical struggle, uh, that's specific to me as an African-American man. And, uh, they basically put the cuffs on me and, and put me in a telephone booth size cage and told me they were going to put me under investigation, uh, for being a prison gang member, which I thought was ludicrous. And they put me in the hole and I stayed there for about nine months while they conducted an investigation. And while they did the investigation, they said that basically I had too much black literature in my cell, uh, about black history, new African uh, literature that spoke about uh, political struggles, not only here in the West, but also in Africa and in the Middle East uh, and South America. And so they said that based on the fact that I had all of that politically themed literature, they deemed that I was a threat to the institution and that I was a threat to every institution within the Department of Corrections. I, unlike many others, had no 1030s. There was no confidential information on me. There was no person pointing me out saying I had done any specific thing. Uh, they basically took, you know, some of the classes I was teaching when they found out about that and, and the literature that I had, and they said, you know, we feel like you have to be neutralized and we're going to place you in solitary confinement indefinitely. Uh, there was no hearing. There was no due process. There was no opportunity for me to rebut it. Uh, that was just it. They, they put me in a cage uh, in some boxes and a T-shirt and said, I'll go to classification every six months, uh, and they'll review it. Uh, and that was the journey, uh, or that was the start of a journey that ended up being, you know, bittersweet and a nightmare in many ways. <sighs> okay, so can we just say that this sounds to me like vestiges of slavery because yeah, it's, it's ironic I, I don't mean interject and interrupt you. please just, please you, interrupt you said, you said a word you, you talked about slavery and i think it's important for every person that's listening to understand the context of, of that's what white society in america did to my ancestors when we came that we weren't allowed to read mm-hmm. we weren't allowed to get inside of a Bible. We weren't allowed to get inside of teaching ourselves arithmetic or literature. And and we have to understand as an audience what education and self-awareness means to the human spirit and what the enemies know education does to the human mind and the human spirit and the human desire to awaken and find itself. Uh, one of the reasons they did that to our ancestors is because, you know, once you read and once you become self-aware and once you educate yourself and realize who you are, you now become a threat, and, uh, and it's very difficult for people to contain you. It's very difficult for people to enslave you. Uh, we see that now, even in today's society, where the more ignorant they can keep you, the more or less educated they can keep you, you are no threat to the status quo of what society is. And it's not until you read history, until you read political thought, until you read who you are by people who are just like you, uh, that's what that's the fire that awakens you and kind of tells you, like, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to be living in these concentration camps in the projects of South Central Los Angeles. Wait a minute. I'm not supposed to be over here in a gentrified community where every other corner there's a liquor store and, and, and other kind of negative things that, that are going on in my community. And so that's really what the system uh, is afraid of, is the awakening. And so, you know, for me, when I got placed in solitary confinement indefinitely for studying myself, 
studying brothers and sisters that look like me, that were part of my family lineage historically. For me, it had remnants of slavery, and that's what caused me to fight and learn law the way that I did while I spent that eight and a half years. So I just want to point that out, that it does have a direct correlation to slavery and the struggle for African-Americans in this country for the past 400 years. And I agree. And I try to say it at every show that, um, that well, slavery was never abolished. I mean, the 13th Amendment Exception Clause says it, except for punishment for crime. And so here we are. And here you are telling us the proof of that. You spent eight and a half years in solitary confinement because you wanted to educate yourself and educate others. And that was your crime. And I think it's also really important for all of us hearing this. Um, is that the world that we want to live in? Do we want to live in a world with diminished people or do we want people that are healthy and vibrant of spirit and mind and body and don't we want to hear that or do we just want the same story i mean people i love the phrase um it's an african phrase it's a god must have loved stories because he made so many people don't we want that don't we want people to be at their finest and so uh, anyway, that's the world that I'm looking for. And so when I think about that young, beautiful mind of Ken Oliver, who was sitting in that car and then um, in a, uh, unknowingly in a, a stolen car with a gun, and the guns are rampant in this country. Of course, we know there are only some people that are supposed to have them. But there's this beautiful young mind um, that then is is just snatched off the streets. And you're able to continue that inside. Thankfully, your your spirit somehow, and I and you know the pain of you know hearing how just bringing this up and talking about it um, brings you back to that place. And um, we do talk a lot about the um, the uh, the effects of solitary confinement um, on this radio program. So, um, but I I do want to. Um, focus can refocus again on the triumph for you and why how you got to um only to eight and a half years they were planning on keeping you in there indefinitely you had a life sentence you actually got out after 23 years and that's work that you did and i would love for you to talk about that okay uh you know even even thinking about a new bay it's it's you know, I'm, I'm somewhat of an anomaly, and, and I'm blessed in that I was able to find and medicate myself through studying the law when I was in solitary confinement. I read every single constitutional case that dealt with solitary confinement, status-based deprivation, First Amendment, 14th Amendment, Eighth Amendment, that existed since the 1800s, since they had a Supreme Court. Uh, to me, it was, I, I couldn't digest the fact that I hadn't done anything. Mm -hmm. The only thing I had done is educate myself. I didn't make any threats against anybody. Nobody said that I was doing anything. I didn't have any 1030s. 
And yet I was sitting in a room, and I, I certainly don't mean any disrespect to anybody when I say this. I was sitting in a room full of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males who swore up and down, no matter what I said, that I was the worst guy or one of the worst guys in the California Department of Corrections. And because that I was, I, had, I was a threat to every single prison in the state of California. Okay, can so, <clears throat> hold on. Sure. We, I ha- I'm going to interrupt you, which is totally rude. Um, but it's that right there. This is the narrative that they're putting out there, people, that you somehow are the worst of the worst because you want to educate yourself and you're actually educating other people. Because you are disrupting their system of control and to keep you, what's the word that you use, which is just hideous people, neutralize. That's a military term. Neutralize. Right? So I just, so I had to interrupt because you are a threat. You are a threat. You are dangerous to the security of the system. Because you want to educate yourself, be whole of body, mind, and spirit, and you want to teach that to others as well so that they're not just, I listened to a young man last night um, who was in for 25 years, and he said that, yeah, and I, that the people inside, they want them to be drugged and, um, and just zoned out because that's how they can control us in there. That's what they're looking for. They don't want guys like you. They don't want guys like him that were educating themselves and um, and, and reading and not and and um, yes, taking the classes and doing the programming with what little there is available. So I just I really need people to to hear that you are considered the worst of the worst. And imagine what that does. You happen to have a strong mind. Some people can't handle that. Right. Well, I th- I, what I found is, is typically if you go against the status quo or you have ideology that contradicts the narrative of, you know, America, the great nation or make America great again or, you know, any narrative that has been put out by uh, white supremacy participants, mm-hmm. uh, then you be- then you become a threat. I mean, the person that actually was responsible for placing me in cuffs and putting me in the hole and making sure that I had an indefinite uh term of in solitary confinement specifically told me and i'm quoting ken had you been on the prison yard smoking weed drinking alcohol with your friends and your homies you would not be in this situation you are in this situation because of all of that political material that you had in your cell you're a threat that's what he told me verbatim and I never saw the outside of the general prison population again for eight and a half years <laughs> after that. Oh, that is uh, just sickening. Right. That is right. just sickening. Right. And so that, you know, to bring that back back to what we were speaking of, that that is what fueled me when I saw somebody look me in my face and say that, you know, he realized that maybe I wasn't who they were trying to label me as, uh, but that the prison administration felt that what I was doing in reference to my reading material, which was kind of ironic because I also had books, you know, by Warren Buffett and other people. I mean, my, my reading was, was uh, widespread. It wasn't just revolutionary material or black history material. I had Latin history material. I had Karl Marx and Engels, you know, economic theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had all different types of books that I was interested in reading. But, you know, the reality is that when I got to the shoe, I could not sleep at night 
knowing that somewhere along these lines, I was being enslaved. I was in the year 1690, and I was being persecuted for educating myself as a black man in America. And to me, encroaching upon my manhood as a black man in America, more so than has been encroached upon already, is something that I can never live with. I just don't have that in me to, to lay down and accept that. Uh, and so I fought the best way that I thought that I could, which is by unraveling uh, their language. When I say there, I mean the system, the court system, the judicial system. Mm-hmm. They play with a lot of words. They use legalese. And they try to overtalk the common citizen uh, with all the different definitions they have for one word. And so I wanted to unwind that. And it was a challenge to me because I don't think that there's any person in this country that is necessarily more gifted or smart than I may be if I apply myself. So that kind of gave me the heart and the courage to say, I'm going to fight you where you're at. I'm going to educate myself and learn exactly what you've learned. I'm going to go to law school myself in the six by nine cell every single day from seven in the morning until midnight, which is exactly what I did. I didn't watch TV. I didn't do anything else other than exercise and read law every single day. People thought I was crazy. Uh, but that's what I did. And what ended up happening was is that I ended up crafting a civil rights lawsuit against the state that they refused to answer for three years. The courts wouldn't answer it. Uh, they were afraid to answer it uh, until one day a judge called me out of my cell on a video conference and said, Mr. Oliver, I've had your lawsuit in my office for three years. What is it that you want to make this go away? Uh, and, and unlike, you know, I just want to qualify, unlike what a lot of other uh, brothers and sisters behind the walls did when they were in the shoe, I didn't necessarily fight my individual reasons for being placed in the shoe because it's very difficult to win in court when you have an officer's word against your word about a given topic. Courts are usually real deferential to prison administrators, and they don't want to get into a conversation or an argument about whether somebody's this or whether somebody's that. So they typically don't allow you any wiggle room to win on that basis. So what I attacked was the Department of Corrections itself and its structure and its system of creating, uh, unknown to most Californians and probably uh, most Americans, California's version of Guantanamo Bay, mm-hmm. which is, is what mm-hmm. they did since 1974, that they indiscriminately placed people in solitary confinement and segregation based on little to no evidence and then crafted narratives around dangerousness. And that became a key word, uh, kind of like the word terrorist that we've right. heard for the last 10 years to describe kids, to describe you know, common domestic fights are now called terrorist threats, et cetera, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so this, this notion of language and how authorities are able to use language to twist people up and place them in, in precarious positions and, and really isolate them and, and commit them to what the United Nations said, which is torture, uh, for decades. And so for me, I wasn't going to stop until I was either successful or dead. Those were my two options. That's what I live with every morning. Um, and that's what I did. And I was fortunate enough when that judge called me in to tell him that, you know, I wanted to prove and bring CDC down uh, to a trial. I wasn't interested in fighting my case. I wanted to bring the system of 
validating people using confidential information, validating people without due process hearings, validating people based on race, based on ethnicity. Uh, I wanted to bring that system down, and that's what I intended to do. Uh, the judge basically said, look, I can go talk to the attorney general, and we can, you know, get you a settlement of some sort. And this is before the lawsuits even served. I mean, CDC uh, officials in Sacramento hadn't even been served with the lawsuit. So this is how, like, uncommon this is. I can't stress that enough because 95% of our lawsuits when we file them in court are thrown out. Right. Mm -hmm. um, And they don't get past, they don't get past the first stage. But usually they always get served on the defendants. Mine didn't even get served on on CDC. They they didn't want it to be on the record in a court system. Because once the document that I put in would have been into the court system. That means other prisoners would have had access to that document. Other lawyers would have had access to that document. And the way that I structured the lawsuit by challenging what CDC had done and how they lied to the court over 50 years about what they were doing. Because, you know, my lawsuit wasn't the first one. Uh, you know, there was great work done in the 70s in a case called Wright versus Inamato. You know, that was followed by the Toussaint litigation in the 80s and early 90s, which led to the Madrid Gomez case, Mm -hmm. uh, which ended up leading to the Castillo case, which was a settlement. The problem with all of those cases over 40 years was that CDC would never live up to whatever the settlements or the court orders were, and they would turn around and then lie to the courts about what was happening, right? Right, because there's no oversight, right? There's no (laughs) oversight, no no monitoring, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no oversight. So here, here you have us in the mm-hmm. shoe and in mm-hmm. solitary. We're trying to get to the library one hour a week, trying to read a case or trying to read, you know, a, a law book. And, and we can't keep up with this shit because they have an army of attorneys uh, that are busy playing a shell game with the courts. Mm-hmm. And we're just buried alive. And uh, it, it made it real tough. But, you know, fortunately for me, uh, once my case got some traction and the judge wanted to settle it out with the attorney general, uh I had the help of a law firm in Palo Alto that stepped in and, and basically brought the department down to its knees and forced them to uh, settle my case and let me out of prison, which I was which I was <laughs> grateful and blessed uh, to have been able to do. And now I've kind of like dedicated my life to giving back and helping those that I left behind and, and their families that are out here now. Wow. Thank you. That is, that's a remarkable a remarkable story. And I know that um, I am speaking on behalf of everybody that's listening. I'm just going to tell you now. Um, I will get some calls after this show <laughs> about what it is that you are doing. And I am so, um, I'm really, I'm just so impressed also. I mean, there's no way that I, we can't be moved by what you're telling us. Um, because really all the odds are against you. Right. I mean, that that crazy actions, the crazy actions that you were taking up from, you know, from seven to midnight. Right. And just um, focusing on on, on on getting a better understanding of what the situation is that you are in and how you are going to change it. Um, people often talk about turning the their solitary confinement, that six by nine cell, into a university. Um, and and when I say often, that's of course just the people that have, have of course lived through it, and that's um, 
Um, so I just, um, which I find remarkable, but I have to say, and I would love for you to, to talk to me about this. You know, it's busy out here, right? Like we're always talking about, oh, we're so busy. We can't do this and we can't do that because we're always so busy. You know, our, our jobs take a lot of time and I just don't have time for self-care and things like that, right? Because the reality is that we need that time, right? right. We, we, we actually do need that time. But we need that time before we are, you know, what we say are in trouble, right? Like yeah. I feel like that's another, to me, that is one of the, biggest hits on how our communities are being targeted and divested from and neglected um, uh, from resources that actually make a community healthy and strong and vibrant is we are not putting in place the, the systems that give us the time to do, to educate ourselves, take care of ourselves, be with family and friends, get our do our work. We the the time, the those spaces and time I think are so necessary. And um and I don't know if I'm articulating it well, but that I think it goes back again to the whole idea around education and not just Education, education is such a is a broad topic, right? Um, and thinking about um, schools, schooling versus like testing, or there's a different kinds of you know schooling or education. Right. So I would again, because it still goes back to I want to make that connection somehow, and I know you will be able to do it more eloquently than I. But that again, you you got that time to do that, and you were already starting some of that stuff before you got snatched up. But what if you had been given the time? What if people were actually being given the time to get that education? Right. But I, what I like to what I like to use the word, you know, education can have a, a particular connotation depending on the community yes. uh, that you're speaking to, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for, you know, for many years, and even in some cases now, you go to underserved communities and, and education becomes kind of like this this possible bad word. Right. Uh, so, so for me, you know, the way that I frame it when I speak is information. Um, and mm-hmm. information has a better connotation because everybody wants information, right? Mm-hmm. We want information about who's doing what around the corner, <laughs> what my mama's doing, what my daddy's doing, what my girlfriend's doing. We all want information, right? Right, right. So, so for me, you know, I, I explain to people every opportunity I get that information is the most valuable commodity on the planet. It's more precious than gold. It's more valuable than money, technology, or anything else, because with information, you gain agency. You gain power to acquire or get any of those types of things that we spoke about. So it's actually the acquisition of information that gives us power. And I think when you frame it in a way that people can relate to, Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of information, I think people can be more receptive to what that is, because I, I don't know anybody, even even a person that has never cracked a book before, that doesn't want information about how to make money or, or how to be able to talk to a girl or how to be more successful or how to be able to walk across the street or navigate a cell phone if they've never had one before. Everybody wants information, mm-hmm. right? That's how we survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the way that I frame it. I frame it as a way 
uh, of acquiring information. And I found that when I talk to the youth and when I talk to others, it's a lot more palpable. Uh, and then it becomes a lot more necessary and urgent uh, when they think about it in that context. Because as you mentioned so eloquently yourself, is that education can mean a lot of different things. And it's, it's kind of nebulous. What does that mean, uh, education? Does that mean i got to start studying calculus? Or do i got to start reading books about Benjamin Franklin or George Washington? And so, you know, to, to communities of color, I mean, I'm not particularly interested in learning about George Washington at a, at a given point in time, right? right. So, I mean, that, that, that can have a, have a context for me that turns me off of something that may be, uh, may be detrimental to me if I take on that perspective. Uh, so that's the way that I frame it, and it seems that sometimes it's more, uh, more often than not, it's a lot more uh, palatable. And I agree with that, and, I, and, and, and we need time to get that information. You know, and, and we need time to not only get the information, but to process it and see how it works in our lives. Right. Yeah. And yeah. we are. And and so, um, again, it, you know, so, you know, wanting to and language is so important. And I think that you are right. And I, I the, it is you can hear it differently when you want to get the information. Nobody's really resisting getting information. We, you know, we, we definitely want it and we need time to get it and it needs to be relevant to us. And I think that's yeah. where I was going around the schooling, right? Um, because, I mean, you can get schooling in your own home, right? Yeah. Um, which is different than an education, for instance, yeah. right? And that kind of information. So, um, I, I I just so appreciate this conversation, and you are you're you're so articulate, and um, you really really have been through a lot. Um, you were there during the during the hunger strikes, like you said. Can I yep. ask you? Did you did yep. you partake in the hunger strikes? Absolutely, I, I participated in both hunger strikes. I was there. Uh, I hunger struck for five days the first time, and I think the second time it was seven. Uh, and, you know, hats off to, you know, the fellows and, and all of us uh, that were in the shoe at the time that actually had the foresight and the vision to think about this in a way that hadn't been thought of before. And then it, while I say that, I also have to give incredible gratitude and grace and humility to the team of lawyers and uh, grassroots organizations out here in society who really made it possible. Because the reality is, is that CDC doesn't care whether I starved myself or whether four people died or 10 people died or 20 people died. If they could have kept that secret, we'd all still be in the shoe. I'd still be in prison today. But it was because of the great work of people like yourself, Dubé, and, and the, the Army of Attorneys, uh, the United Nations, who did their report with the torture, uh, and really a, an effort by people to mobilize and say, look, what you're doing to people is you're harming people. Uh, you're torturing people, uh, you're causing people to gain mental illnesses and acquire mental illnesses that they'll never be able to recuperate from. And I call that, you know, a, a different, types of, different type of death, but it's still a death because you lose a piece of yourself that you can never get back. And so, you know, just this wonderful uh, uh, cobble of people, uh, they were able to come together and support us for the first time in many years, probably since the mid-90s when, you know, uh, Bill Clinton, you know, the person that we call our president, mm -hmm. uh, passed the PLRA Act, which basically said attorneys can't get paid for helping prisoners. 
in essence. And, and so what you saw was the exodus of the legal community away from prisoner cases. And uh, oh. because of that, because of that, that's why we couldn't get any help. We, we couldn't get people to, to touch our cases because they couldn't get paid for it. So, you know, who wants to spend thousands and thousands of hours fighting the state, uh, a big state agency at that, with so much power, when they couldn't get paid? There, there, there just weren't any resources to support that kind of work. So the fact that the, this group mm-hmm. of attorneys uh, at Legal Services for Prisoners of Children uh, and Ann Wheel and uh, the Constitutional Law Center, Jules Lobel, just this wonderful couple of Charles Carbone, this wonderful couple of people that came together and, and, and really brought the state down to its knees. I mean, literally, the state of California has upheld holding us in solitary confinement for close to 50 years. This, this program of torture and solitary confinement has gone on for 50 years in the state of California. And the fact that we were able to be successful and get them to basically drop <laughs> this program, uh, or at least modified enough to where most of us were able to be freed from it, is absolutely nothing short of amazing when you're dealing with the Department of Corrections. It was probably one of the most barbaric and crazy agencies that you would ever want to come in contact with. Hmm. Let's just take a moment to take that in. So, um, the statement that the most recent recent uh, solidarity message that came out from those four prisoner reps speaks to what you were just talking about. Um, one of the things that they said in here is it took widespread unity, preparation, and work among us prisoners, but also work on the outside by our families, friends, and growing list of supporters across the state and the country. Um. So that's I, I wanted to say that because, again, for those that are listening, we have a part to play. The prisoners' voices need to be out front. Those that have now returned need to be out front. If you're listening to anything that's happening in these debates and the, with the presidential candidates, nobody is talking about the state of our prisons and mass incarceration. It will come up here and there, but not right now. So we all have a part to play. We have to do this together. It takes the unity, the preparation, and the work. And this work can be so much more vibrant and real when we are doing it together. So... Um, I invite all of you to come to our Liberate the Cage of Voices um, events every month because we are, this is what we are focusing on. We're going to be um, talking with men like Ken Oliver. We are going to be raising the issues put forth by the, uh, the four reps and the um, other representative body about the conditions that are still taking place. Um, in California prison, the, the biggest, the largest prison system in the country. Um, because, so thank you, Ken. Your, your voice, uh, your commentary on this issue is, is so important, and we are going to be moved by it. We want to advocate, you know, with you. We just have a few more minutes, Ken, and I know that um, 
you know, you are now, you are dedicating your, your time, your work, your energy as a community organizer um, and a paralegal, um, as you have done on the inside, you're out here now um, to put that beautiful talent and uh, passion to work in the community. So if you want people to get in touch with you or you just have some last words that you would like to say um, about that. Sure. I think I think one of the things that I was listening to you speak and reflecting on the discussion that we're having uh, is I want to bring special attention to us not forgetting about the women that are in the shoe in solitary confinement and the women uh, that are in California prisons because, you know, in this work that I'm doing, you know, I've come to recognize that a lot of times we forget about the women and in, in the, the prison population of women in this country has increased 700%. Thank you. Uh, in, the, in the last several years. And I think that when we have these conversations, we often focus on the fathers and the brothers and the husbands and the boyfriends that are incarcerated. Of course, yes, we are important and we are integral to the family unit. But I think that oftentimes we forget about the women that have participated in these struggles with us, the women that have uh, sacrificed on behalf of their men and been placed in situations that maybe they may not have uh, been in without us. And so I just want us, everybody to give pause about that and think about when we engage in these conversations about the prison industrial complex that we have in the forefront of our mind, our sisters and our mothers and our girlfriends and our wives and our cousins and relatives and homegirls that are behind the walls uh, dealing with abuses that in many cases uh, trump what we as men go through. When you talk about women being shackled to beds while they're pregnant and, and the different medical things that they go through, uh, it's, it's, they experience torture themselves. So I want to have that in the forefront of the conversation. Uh, and then also I would add that there is today, or there was today at 10 o'clock, and I would urge everybody to get involved and watch it if they can, a, a public discussion, a budget discussion in Sacramento, uh, about the state of California prisons, uh, both in the past, in the present, in the future. Uh, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to be there because I'm at another event. And I've, I had this scheduled interview with New Bay, which I'm grateful for. But if you get a chance, you can go on the government, Senate government website for California, watch the hearing. If you see anything that moves you or is applicable to you or touches you in a specific way, I would urge you to call your local representative and talk about the need to turn prisons in California into transformation centers and get away from this retributive model of revenge and us versus them, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Uh, because one of the things we've seen, New Bay, especially in the last five or six years, is we've seen this wealth of genius that's come out of prison systems, not only in California, but in the United States, to head you know major tech companies, to head major podcast organizations. Several in California are executive directors of nonprofit organizations that are funded by tens of millions of dollars. And so you've seen these people, uh, these brothers and these, these women and these sisters that have been told in the past that they were part of the throwaway population, mm -hmm. that they were part of the voiceless and the faceless and that they didn't matter. And now they're actually superseding and leading conversations about what social impact and what criminal justice and what family unity and what's going, what's going on in our communities in a way that people who threw us away haven't been able to do. Uh, so everybody that's out there that hasn't experienced, you know, being in prison or if you have a loved one that has, I would urge you to, you know, give some thought to that. Because while they focus on who's stealing or breaking into somebody's car, they didn't focus on the fact that a brother put himself through college and now is an executive director of a multi-million dollar nonprofit that's serving the community. 
Uh, and so I just wanted to throw those two things out there uh, in closing, New Bay. Thank you so much. And I'm just going to segue that with next week. Please tune in from 11 to noon because we are going to have Kelly Savage from the California Coalition of Women for, for Women's Prisoners on um, to speak with us. So um, thank you, Ken, so much for joining us today. You are truly an inspiration. And I hope that we can have you on again as well. Sure. And um, again, thank you so much. Folks, have a beautiful, beautiful week. That's it for us today, and I will see you next week. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Okay, thank Bye-bye. you, too. Bye-bye. Universal love, what you give shall return Every day's a lesson we live and we learn I take a look around, they got me so concerned Seems like these are the times a savior shall return So I look in the mirror, see a God's reflection Knowing the change I wanna see begins in my perception Look every person in the eye, allow a real connection Fear no man, I know the angels over me protecting And no weapon formed against me shall ever prosper Knowing even through the struggles that just makes me stronger My sacrifices are the prayers a humble servant offers at the altar And these bars as hard as the rock of Gibraltar So I'll never falter Got these haters puzzled like a crossword When I hit them with them spiritual laws Deepak Chopra Meditations, mantras, affirmations, honor Uplift, utmost high, Oakland, the Wakanda I spread universal love all around the world This one for my people near and far Hit you with the sound that'll touch your heart Blessings like a message that was sent from God I spread universal love all around the town Some claim they are the king, but I wear the crown Shining like the biggest and the brightest star Blessings like a message that was sent from God In the early hours after the tsunamis, it was ham radio that was on the air saving lives. When Florida was ripped by hurricanes, the hams were there. In the critical moments after the attack of 9-11, it was the hams who coordinated emergency messages. Can you hear us now? Ham radio works when other communications don't. To learn how you can become a ham radio operator, call the ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio, at one 800 Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans 